Welcome to The Saint Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring hope to the people of East London, and I'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk. Okay, Psalm 23, Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing a series on firm foundations. And today um, we're going to be looking at how, I wonder if that little table is around. Is that, is it, is that anywhere? Can I just, can I, we'll run and get it together. And you go, you get the bottom of it. Is that all right? Hang on, put that on there. Where are you going to loot it? No, I've got it. There we go. There we go. So sorry. Today I want us to look at something that's really important. And what we're going to look at is how we want the church community to be a safe place for everyone. We're living in a time as a culture of great reckoning. Institutions are failing. Leaders that we've looked up to have fallen. We hear terrible stories of abuse that come to light. And while this stuff can be really difficult to speak about, we are committed to making the church in our generation safer. So that's what we're going to take some time to do tonight. And that's why I've asked um, Amy or Ewing to join us. Dr. Amy or Ewing is an author, speaker, theologian. She holds a doctorate of theology from Oxford University, is the author of a number of books, including Where Is God in All the Suffering? and Why Trust the Bible? More recently, she's had first-hand experience of some of the issues we're going to talk about tonight. And just before Amy comes up and and speaks, and we're going to have a conversation, I want to frame this with a few things. Firstly, as the church, and as this church community, we take safeguarding really seriously. We're committed to the church being a safe community. We have a duty to value all people as bearing the image of God and therefore to protect as much as we can each other from harm. If you want to find out more about our safeguarding policies, please can I encourage you to visit our website where you can find details of both our own safeguarding team and independent safeguarding agencies. Now tonight we're not going to be discussing any live safeguarding cases or commenting on matters that you might read about in the press or national matters. However, as a church, we are committed to helping anyone who's experienced harm and to creating an environment where everyone can speak openly and freely. And that's not always easy. And we're not always going to get it right. So, if you ever need or want to make a disclosure or have been affected in any way by what we're going to talk about tonight, we've got a team, a parish safeguarding team, parish safeguarding officer who'll be around at the end of the service, and a team of pastors who are around to support you. Support is available. I've also put, we have on our website, details of both our safeguarding team here, but also the diocese safeguarding team, and importantly, independent safeguarding organizations, including 318. And the point of this is that whatever you experience in life, there are people who can help you, who want to support you. You will be listened to. And I hope that what you say will be taken seriously. And as a church community, we really want to be committed to to creating safe spaces for everyone. So that's the first thing, safeguarding. Secondly, it's important in life to not be afraid to have difficult conversations. 
I'm a pastor. I'm a vicar. And part of my job is to try and encourage a culture where we're not afraid to talk about important things well and safely with love. And sometimes it's important to address difficult matters. And so tonight I want to give a little bit of a trigger warning, if that's okay, that we might be discussing some topics that will be painful for you. And again, we've got a pastoral support team. We've got a safeguarding team available at the end of the service should anyone need support. And if you're watching this online, maybe you're watching this with your family, let me just restate that. We are going to talk about things tonight that may be painful and maybe triggering. So could I encourage you to be wise as you watch? And if you're watching anywhere online today in the world, and it raises questions for you about anything at all, let me encourage you to reach out. Please visit the website. We want to try and connect you. We'd be happy to try and connect you with support locally where you are. So second thing, we want to talk about things that are important, and even if they're difficult. And the third thing I want to say before we begin is that Jesus really loves his church. Over the past few months, we've been experiencing that kindness, his love for us, his presence with us. And part of what Jesus has been doing, it seems, is bringing healing, teaching us what repentance really means, what it means to walk in reconciliation. There's good and deep relational work happening. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's important. And my sense is what we're going to talk about tonight and what we're talking about in this series of Firm Foundations is part of God helping us to build foundations and nurture what the future of the church will look like just for us here. Now, repentance involves acknowledging our own failures, both individually and as the institution of the church. So, what we're going to talk about tonight, I want to frame as a pastor with, I hope, some humility. I'm conscious that I've got a platform here. I'm conscious that I hold power by virtue of having a microphone and being a vicar. And I also have the privilege, the immense privilege, of getting to lead this community. And I'm mindful also that, like many of us, I'm speaking having experienced the pain of abuse firsthand in my own life. So this conversation is not clinical or theoretical for me. And I know it won't be for many of you. So as a pastor and as a church community who are trying to work out how we care and love each other well, I want to start by just encouraging us that we're committed to growing as healthy as we can this side of heaven. And that's not always easy. We're not going to always get it right. But I want to assure you that we really want to do the work together on this. And as I've shared this before many times, if you're part of this church community, I feel as, as a leader my job as a servant really, as a steward is a more accurate word, is to walk in repentance. And that means me saying to you, I'm really sorry if you've ever experienced hurt from the church. I'm sorry if you've been hurt here. It's not God's plan. His heart is broken for us, for you. So let me pray before we welcome Amy. And I, I don't pray because it's buying time, <laughs> so Amy can come up. But I'm praying because we have nowhere else to go but Jesus, right? As Christians, that's what we are. We're people who come to the cross and we come to him saying, Lord, <laughs> we need your help, good shepherd. Help us to live well. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight conscious that we need you. As we talk about what we're going to talk about, would you give us courage, each one of us in our own hearts, to not shy away or negate or discount or hide, but to bring into the light of your presence our desperate need for you. Lord, we thank you for this community. 
we ask that you'd teach us to walk the way of grace and forgiveness. Teach us to walk in the green pastures you call us to, to shepherd our souls in your love. And we thank you that we will know your goodness all the days of our lives when we do this. And so speak to us, encourage us, be with us, comfort us, Holy Spirit. We pray tonight for all those who've experienced abuse. We pray for whom tonight will open wounds. We thank you for the courage of those victims of abuse. And we ask that you'd help us be a community that's safe. We come to you in repentance and we ask for your help. And we thank you that Jesus is alive and that you're the God of hope. Fill us each tonight with resurrection power that brings life and light out of darkness and hope out of despair and healing out of brokenness. And give us peace in your name today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to welcome up Amy, and I'm going to switch the table back down if I can. Um, thanks so much, guys. Um, Amy, come on up. Why don't we welcome Amy as she comes? Amy, um, tell us a bit about you. Thanks, Al. Hi, everyone. Um, what a joy to be here with you this evening, and um, it's a real honour to have this important conversation. Um, so, yeah, uh, my, my background, I guess, is my father um, came to this country um, shortly after the Second World War as a refugee with his parents, and they just arrived in Britain with what they were standing up in. Um, he met my mum uh, in Canada. They were both studying abroad as, as um, postgraduate students. And he then moved, they then moved to Australia, and my sister and I were born there. My parents didn't have any faith at all. They had no predisposition to sort of be religious. They, they didn't believe in God, but they had a very dramatic encounter with, with Jesus in their 30s. And so I grew up in a context where um, I saw the difference Jesus made. And my dad went on to be, become a church planter and we moved back to the UK. So I, um, I guess I became a Christian sort of as a child, but definitely again as a teenager. And then I um, studied at Oxford, as Al's mentioned, did my doctoral work there as well. But for the last 25 years, um, I've been working full time as a theologian and speaker often involved in evangelism and apologetics, um, traveling the world. I've sort of spoken in nearly 40 countries and um, often kind of speaking about faith at the intersection of people's big questions about life. Um, and so that's been a huge joy. I'm married and I've got three sons as well. And Frog and I kind of lead a church, sort of group of churches around a farm which is kind of con in conservation farm so we're really engaged with questions about environment and climate as well so so Amy thanks for being with us tonight this is um a conversation that we wanted to have um yeah. I guess about creating safe spaces and you've unfortunately had some experience this firsthand just share a little bit of yeah. what you've been through thanks Al um so for over 20 years, I worked supported by a large Christian ministry and organisation that um, had been founded and was led by um, a very well-known Christian philosopher and speaker called Ravi Zacharias. And he's the kind of person that, you know, filled stadiums and spoke in every elite university and parliament around the world. He was an absolutely beloved hero of the faith, um, Indian background originally, but um, lived and sort of was based in the States. And um, essentially, uh, it's, it's a very long and drawn out story and there are lots of things online you can read about it, but it began, there were massive red flags towards the end of his life and then after he died, um, 
people or some people came forward to to say that he had sexually abused them and it was really really difficult very disorientating obviously for the organization but I was involved with others in I guess whistleblowing and pushing for an independent investigation into this and to ensure that the full truth um, came into the light Uh, It was absolutely devastating and, you know, involved in supporting victims. And as a result of that, um, at the same time, I went through a very traumatic experience personally as well. Um, And, you know, it had huge financial implications for me too. So it it was a real, like, the sky is falling kind of experience. And obviously it wasn't really about me. Um, The most important people in this were, were his many, many... Um, victims of sexual abuse. So um, through that time, um, and as a result of the traumatic experience, I, I really needed um, specialist therapy. Had a lot of prayer ministry, which was great, but complementary to that, needed um, therapy with a psychologist. And I've been through more than 18 months of trauma therapy, which has been amazing. And I share that with you because I want to be vulnerable and open. Um, But also to say that sometimes in the church, we can feel like failures if we need more than prayer. And in this conversation, it's really important that we contend for those of us who need it to have all the help that we can get which is which is available including the great advances in medical and psychological support um so um as a result of that because some of that was quite public I've subsequently been involved in um advocating for and supporting victims of sexual abuse in um, religious contexts, specifically Christian contexts. And so part of my work now is in that, in that advocacy space. Um, and I really feel passionate and committed that in our generation of Christians, we do exactly what Al's heart is to do here, that where the light needs to be shone on evil and darkness, including in our own midst... We do that and we do the hard work, but that we also commit to build structures and churches that are truly safe and that actually reflect the goodness and beauty and truth of Jesus. Thanks, Amy. Um, I think it's, I mean, there's there's lots to talk about, but um, I just want to add as well, um, uh, I see a counsellor, I see a therapist regularly and I don't want you to know that um, as a pastor I think that's really important that it's no sort of shame in saying that we need we need help all of us need help um, and I, I want to encourage you not to suffer if your mental health isn't great um, if you struggle with whatever it might be you are it's okay to not be okay and that sounds like cliche but um, I'm saying that as a pastor um, I need lots of help the whole time so I want to encourage you don't sit in silence um, and as we go through today um, we're going to talk about some things that will be painful and again we've got support available we want to make sure that we um, we commit to walking well through the journey of what it looks like to be healthy as Christians so we can say more about that in a moment many people listening and maybe those who've joined us online will have experienced trauma and pain and hurt not just in their personal lives but also from institutions, um, including the church. How do you think the church in this generation needs to build different? What do we need to do to build something better for the next generation? Well, obviously, that's a massive question. I just want to start by saying I'm definitely not an expert. And, you know, this is, this is a journey for all of us. Um, But I think at least we need to begin with radical and sometimes brutal honesty. And, um, you know, in in my own life, at the very darkest point, um, when I was just really, really struggling with this devastation of this leader who's turned out not to be at all what, what we thought and believed, and that massive disorientation around that, and um, the sort of traumatic fallout of that. Um, I had a conversation with an older Christian that, that really helped me. He said two things. 
The first was, he said, um, it was Jesus Christ who said it would be better to have a millstone, that's like a huge stone they used for grinding grain for, for bread. It would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause a little one to stumble. In other words, Jesus Christ's priority is not the powerful, it's not the great things we've built that we want to try and preserve and protect. Jesus's priority is the little one, the vulnerable person. And so to begin with whatever we build with that priority, that radical priority on every person made in the image of God, precious to God, deserving of dignity, and this kind of fierce commitment to the preciousness of that person. And then the second thing this friend said, you know, I was really struggling with feeling like a massive failure. On, you know, on one level, I was kind of traveling and writing books and speaking and um, doing things for God's kingdom that, you know, I felt were quite impressive and important, right? But I'd totally failed to see the truth about this very significant person in my life. And um, I found that just utterly crushing on, on a personal level. And this man said, look, let's, let's turn to the book of Acts. And I thought, why? I don't want to look at the Bible, certainly not Acts. You know, Acts is about sort of success and breakthrough and church planting. And, you know, I'm struggling here with being an absolute total devastated failure basket case and he said no um, let's look at Acts I want to look at Acts 1 now I'm sure you know the story of Acts 2 Pentecost the spirit is poured out on the church 3,000 are added to their number it kicks off this whole thing of church planting and the whole movement of, of Christianity but in Acts chapter 1 after the ascension of Jesus the whole half of the first chapter is dedicated to the question of how do we build after the devastation of betrayal the question is who should replace Judas as one of the 12 and how do we decide that how do we work this out in other words the church of Jesus Christ is not built on sweeping betrayal devastation abuse under the carpet and having this vision of victory and success unto victory and never mentioning the bad things that happen. The Bible totally and utterly centers right at the beginning of that book, this, this experience. So at least as we begin conversations about um, responding to not just the trauma in our world, but the trauma in us, we can begin in, in radical honesty. And that's really, really important. Thanks, Abby. So let's talk practically for a yeah. minute. If somebody has experienced or is experiencing something they're really worried about or feels like they're not sure if it feels healthy, feels abusive, feels like control or feels like some kind of other form of abuse, either in their work, in their home, in a church context, mm. what practically, what recourse do we have? What practically can an individual do if they're mm. worried about something? Help us walk through what that would look like. Yeah. So um, I think the first thing I'd want to say to that is that um, red flags, you know, we know we have that phrase, don't we? We even have it on our email that flags are really, really important. And if there's, there are crossing of boundaries, if there are sort of strange things that happen a lot that, that feel wrong and abusive, don't ignore red flags. Now, sometimes we're going to have instincts in us, and particularly as Christians, we might even have these instincts more strongly to suppress red flags, to suppress warning signs, because we're sort of wired towards loyalty. Don't say anything bad or think anything bad about anyone. And so we suppress that sort of warning signal that is in our mind or even our body. And to begin to learn, to be alert to that, to listen to that, and as Christians, to ask the Holy Spirit to actually awaken that sense 
of danger and be someone who kind of contends for goodness and justice, I think is, is one thing. I think if we're talking about um, actual abuse, then Al has already flagged there are um, multiple ways of reporting. It might be that you need to report to the police. It might be that you need to report, report to the appropriate authority structure of where you're seeing this thing happen. There are other agencies like 31.8 for, for a more kind of Christian context. I think the third thing I'd want to say, though, is... Um, there's something really important to be said about our voices. So 318 is an organisation, right, committed to safeguarding. But it comes from a verse in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8. And it's, it says, speak up on behalf of the oppressed. And sometimes that is going to include you. In other words, there is a biblical imperative to speak up for others and for yourself, to use your voice. Now, often in a, in a, in a context where abuse is, is occurring unchecked, there will be other dimensions in play that are very subtle, but that, that add to this sense that you shouldn't say anything, that you should be quiet, that you just shouldn't be a bother and you shouldn't raise your voice. And I just want to encourage you, Proverbs 31 verse 8 is speak up. So that might mean expressing concern in the moment and saying, I don't feel comfortable with this. It might be sharing concerns with others. Now again, you know, teachings about gossip sometimes have been weaponized to, to say, well, if you ever express a concern, then you're a terrible, evil, awful gossip. I've had that loads. So I've sought to, to speak up on the behalf of women who've been raped and sexually abused, that that would be gossip to do that. So recognize, you know, your own sort of internal silencing that might come from a more dysfunctional context. And, and speak up. Use the voice that God has given you. Thanks, Amy. Let's talk about trauma. Yeah. As human beings, how do we deal with hurt and trauma? Yeah, thanks, Al. So, again, um, I'm, not, I'm not at all an expert on this. I'm talking to you as someone who um, has experienced profound trauma, needed therapy for that, I had 18 months of trauma therapy, but also um, my husband is a trauma survivor of, of um, profound child abuse and has complex PTSD, if any of you know what that is. Um, and so this is, this is something that is very my lived experience, right, of, of, of living through trauma. And I think I'd want to say two things just to help us begin to think about and respond to trauma. The first is that often we can make the mistake of seeing traumatized people through a negative lens. But actually what the, what the studies suggest is that trauma survivors have superpowers. Because to be someone who has gone through trauma and survived and built any kind of life means you have the most enormous reserve of strength and overcoming. So don't make the mistake of looking down on people who are traumatized, writing off people who have trauma experiences as kind of damaged in some way or mental health problems or they shouldn't be listened to. Why, why not create contexts where people who've survived and come through trauma can teach the rest of us and exercise their superpowers, which are often highly creative. And for the Church of Jesus Christ to, to do that better than the world, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Mm. And then I think the second thing I would say is that um, we may not, every single one of us in this room may not be a trauma survivor ourselves, but chances are that someone in our life quite close to us is going to be a trauma survivor. It might be in our family, it might be in our team at work. So actually it's worth putting some work in to, to learn and become trauma-informed. 
so that you can begin to recognise what this is. Now, um, the, the, I think one of the best sort of readable, and you can, you can sort of look it up online as well, resources on this is a book by Bessel van der Kolk called The Body Keeps the Score. And he was um, one of the team of researchers who worked with Vietnam veterans first and they came up with this term PTSD in the cluster of symptoms that we now think of as, as PTSD. And um, so what, what the researcher, often people think that trauma is a kind of mental health issue. Actually, um, what, what, what the research shows is that trauma is stored in the human body much less in the mind. So it's in the musculature and the hormonal pathways of the body. The body keeps the score. And so in becoming trauma-informed, we can begin to learn some basics about trauma. You might have heard of fight or flight. There's another F called fawn. So there's fight, flight, or fawn. Those are um, survival instincts that kick in in the context of, of, of a trauma. And so if you want to be something, someone who's empathetic to, to trauma, it's really worth being able to recognise when those characteristics are kicking in. There are other things that are really important. One um, is something called dissociation. And that, that is when um, if you've been through trauma and your trauma is triggered by something that happens, as a survival mechanism, your body disassociates from what's happening and you have a kind of disconnect. Now, if, you don't, if you're not trauma-informed, you might look at, a, at someone who's in a dissociative state and think, they're not feeling anything. They're, they're in some sort of robotic mind. They don't care. And that would be to totally misread a traumatised person. So we need to put in the work. And then just the, the last thing I would say is that you know, on this journey myself of becoming more trauma-informed and surviving and coming through this, I've begun to read the Bible in a completely different way and to see how the Word of God, how the Bible describes traumatised people. And all that we know to be true about trauma is, is there in the scriptures. So we can read our own experience there in God's word. But more importantly than that, in Jesus, God demonstrates the love of God and chooses to reveal the love of God to this world and in this world by experiencing profound trauma. So as Christians, we can't look down on anyone who goes through trauma because we have a traumatised saviour. And we see that on two levels. We see it in Christus Victor, Christ victorious over sin and harm and abuse and evil and darkness. And through the cross, he's utterly victorious over that. We see that sort of superhero theme. But in Jesus, we also see God willingly being subjected to the most profound physical and psychological trauma known to, to man, known to human beings. And Jesus suffers that to demonstrate to us the love of God. So if you feel alone, abandoned, devastated, misunderstood, when you look at Jesus, you see a God who himself walked through trauma I think that's really amazing. That's a message for us as the church, but that's a message for our world, our traumatised world in this, in this moment we find ourselves in as well. Let's talk a bit about cancel culture and forgiveness because the world we're in is, is pretty stark now. People are getting cancelled if they express different opinions and um, moving from trauma in a sense to forgiveness and grace how does it look for the church to hold um the the tension between we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of god every one of us is broken and we want to um pursue justice mm. somewhere on the line we want to create places where there's grace but also we want to be you know where the church has covered up stuff oh we're gonna we're just gonna show grace actually no we need justice mm. we need truth we need 
reconciliation, we need life. Talk to us about what it looks like as Christians in the world of cancel culture to practice grace and forgiveness without compromising our integrity in Christ. Yeah, thanks, Al. I mean, I don't know how many of you in this room shuddered when you heard the word forgiveness. Sometimes the word forgiveness has been almost weaponized by the church to minimize the harm of abuse. So you kind of feel, I'm absolutely drowning in pain here and now you're asking me to forgive. And to layer on top of that another layer of pain is that there's a disconnect between what we mean by, what people mean by forgiveness Because in our world where cancel culture is operational and where the main driver of intersectionality thinking and and that all the power discourses that are in play in our society, the main value is justice. So within cancel culture, forgiveness is moral weakness and it is abhorrent. Because forgiveness would be to say that harm wasn't actually wrong and you're letting the perpetrator off. Or forgiveness would be to say that the harm didn't really hurt that much and I've got to just say I forgive you and minimise my own pain. So often when people hear Christians say forgiveness is, is you know, an, an important value, what they're hearing is you are minimising abuse, you are minimising harm and you're saying I've got to do it too. And I've got to, you know, shut down my own emotion and pain. So what I'd want to say to that and encourage us as a church in this cultural moment to to really think about is that actually biblical forgiveness and Christian forgiveness does not say the harm wasn't really that bad. It doesn't minimise the harm. And Christian forgiveness also doesn't require me to say it doesn't hurt that badly anymore, so I forgive you. Christian forgiveness says the harm is so bad and abhorrent that to forgive it would require the death of God in history. The harm is so massive and the judgment of God, the millstone around the neck against any harm against any precious person made in the image of God would be so massive that it would require something huge and divine. And Christian forgiveness isn't saying my feelings about the harm need to be minimised in some way. Christian forgiveness is actually a gift to the abuse victim because it's saying not what was done to me doesn't really matter or it doesn't really hurt it's saying I can give the burden of my vengeance I can give the burden of my right requirement that justice is done in this great evil I can give that to a loving God and I can trust him that right will actually be done he will judge the evil of this world and will either face that judgment at the judgment seat of Christ or Christ's death will pay for that judgment. How though? Only if there's repentance. And repentance doesn't minimise harm. Genuine repentance that is receiving the forgiveness of God for the things we've done wrong doesn't say the harm I've caused doesn't really matter that much. Thank you, Jesus. That would be cheap grace. Repentance is that, is that key that unlocks that grace. So actually the message of forgiveness is a very pro-victim message in this world. Christian forgiveness, because it's not minimising harm and it's not saying you have to pretend it doesn't hurt that bad. It's enabling us to release our requirement for vengeance into the hands of a just and, and loving God. And I think what that means in our age of cancel culture is that we also have an opportunity to begin to talk about even the possibility of redemption and grace. We can do it in a way that doesn't minimise accountability, that doesn't minimise our need for justice and that doesn't minimise the seriousness of harm. But we can be a people who hold out the possibility of forgiveness 
because of the death of Jesus. I think if, it, if this is true, this is a message for our generation. If this is real, the death of God in history, in the person of Jesus, is real, it changes everything and it is so freeing and so liberating. Let's talk about this culture and you talked about this cultural moment. Well, there seem to be two extremes at play at the moment. On the one hand, we live in this hyper-sexualized world and on the other hand, there's a sort of extreme purity culture in some parts of the church that is actually very unhealthy. Mm. Um, what does healthy look like for us as Christians trying to follow Jesus mm. in this culture? I was asking all the easy questions tonight. <laughs> Let me just again preface, I am not an expert on this. I'm going to just share. Um... While you're here, I didn't, want to, you know, I didn't want us to skirt around things. But... Yeah, no, you're brilliant. Um... So let me just begin by acknowledging that there has been a lot of toxicity in what's called purity culture, which is um, all kinds of legalism laid upon people and shame laid upon people and especially laid upon women, actually. Um, much, all of which we don't see in the scriptures. And if you want to think a bit more about that, there's a really interesting book called The uh, the Great Sex Rescue by a woman called Sheila Gregory, where she's done sociological research tracking the impact of, of purity culture. She's a Christian, she's a follower of Jesus, um, but she wants to have a sort of really positive conversation about what it means to follow Jesus with our sexuality. In our cultural moment, though, I want to just scroll back a moment and a little bit and think about how people view what it means to be human and what our bodies are, what the, what the meaning of embodied human life is at all. Because if we're not believers in God, and the majority of people now in Britain are not believers in God, we're going to be following what's called materialism. That's a, a worldview that tells us that all that exists is matter, the stuff that we can taste and touch and test. And so as a human being, if you're a materialist and there's no God, all that it means to be human is to be the collection of atoms, the biochemistry of your body. That's it. Materialism goes alongside consumerism. Consumerism follows, if you like, and it's often used interchangeably, isn't it? If you're materialistic, you're someone who wants to consume stuff. Why? Because if all there is is the stuff, the physical stuff of this universe, then the highest form of joy or transcendence you can experience is to consume other physical matter. That might be through ownership of assets, might be through different kinds of greed, or it might be through sex, consuming people in relationships. So on the one hand, as Al says, there's this, been this kind of toxic purity culture message, which has laid all kinds of legalism and burden on people. And on the other hand, there's this rampant materialism that tells me the only transcendence, the only meaning I can have is in my body, and I'm going to consume as much as I can. And what I want to suggest is that actually we have an opportunity as the church in this moment to live in the New Testament. And the New Testament talks about our human bodies in different ways, but one of the ways it speaks about what it means to be human and live in a body is that we are temples in which the spirit of the living God can dwell. That is a very high view of the body. It's a very high view of sexuality and consent and all sorts of things. But it's also saying we're more than just the stuff of our bodies. We were made to have this kind of transcendent life, this life and experiences with God and have his spirit um, living within us. So as we have conversations in, your, in our Christian communities right now, and we think together, how do we want to do our, our conversations about sex? How do we want to follow Jesus and the Bible's teaching about sexuality? It begins with a positive vision. You've been made in the image of God, Genesis 127, says the Old Testament. Your body 
was created to be a temple for the spirit of the living God, says the New Testament. So let that vision of what it means to be human shape our conversations about sex, not the materialist view, not the view that says, you know, how much can I get? A totally different approach. So we, we've talked a little bit about the body and the body being a temple of the Holy Spirit. We've had a huge, again, collective moment of reckoning around, you know, particularly following the death of Sarah Everard and the Me Too movement, what it looks like to honour one another. And as a parent of children, a daughter, you mentioned the word consent. I think it's really important we talk about that. And it's not often talked about for the front of church. But let's talk about how we create safe environments. Because the narrative, it seems to me, is lacking in the church a little bit. That if we are genuinely walking temples, if, if the throne of Jesus Christ is in our hearts, that's where he wants to be enthroned and live, then how we relate with one another as people, as the church, could be radically different. So let's talk about consent through the Christian lens. Yeah. Sorry, it's another com- amazing complex love, question. Love it. <laughs> I, th- I, didn't, I didn't promise you an easy ride, no, so no, I'm grateful to you. And um, it's just so important, isn't it, in this, in this moment that we're in. Um, so yeah, I would want to preface, I'd want the beginning of that conversation about consent to even ask, why would consent matter if all we are is a blob of atoms here by chance, just the biochemistry of you? And if I'm wired to consume as much as I possibly can, and you are, and we're in this struggle to, against each other to survive. Actually, a Christian view of what it means to be human, that whether a person believes in God or not, they are made in his image, Genesis 1.27. And that is an essential truth, a radical truth about every human being. If that is true, that makes this conversation about consent way more logical than this view, than a materialist view does. So we ought to be the champions of this stuff of a view of human beings that centres the dignity of the other person, that centres the image of God. And if you think about um, how the Genesis account unfolds, we see that the image of God specifically involves certain things. Human beings, unlike animals, have been created in the image of God. And that means they have the capacity to reason, to think, the capacity to love, the capacity to choose, the capacity to have a conscience. And actually, consent is a kind of, you know, buzzword in our moment, but I think it encapsulates all of those. A person's ability to make a decision and not have power coercively used on them so that their body is taken by someone else in some way. A person has capacity to reason So they're not mentally abused or coerced through psychological torture or or other kinds of means of, of, you know, power misuse that happen in relationships. A person has the capacity to give or withhold love, and that includes how they express love in their sexuality. And so I think that that word consent is really important. And then I just want to say one other thing about this and particularly to the to the women in this place and actually the men who love women in this place the christian faith uniquely in the ancient world gave women voices the christian faith uniquely in the ancient world regarded a single woman as an adult who had volition if she was unmarried and if she was not under her father Greco-Roman world did not do that. So Christianity was radical in how it centred women as people who had autonomy 
to speak into all sorts of spheres in life. But far more than that, the Christian faith stands or falls on the voices of women. I realised this, you know, I was asking, I, I do a lot of kind of Q&As and I kind of by mistake um, ended up saying this phrase and as I was talking, I realised what I was saying. The three most important doctrines of the Christian faith are primarily witnessed by women. The doctrine of the incarnation, that God was born in human history in the person of Jesus. The primary witness to that is a teenage woman called Mary. She's the witness to the virgin birth of Jesus and the incarnation of God. Other people come along afterwards. The second most important doctrine of Christian faith, the atonement, that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. In all four gospel accounts, the primary witnesses to that, to the details of the crucifixion of Jesus, are women. The gospel accounts say the male disciples deserted Jesus. John was there, standing at a distance. The primary witnesses were women. And then, of course, you know, who got to the tomb first, people? Sorry, men. (laughs) But it was women, right? So the Christian faith uniquely centres the voices of women. How could we possibly have got to a situation where the church would silence women? It's totally against who Jesus is. It's totally against what the Christian faith is all about. So yes, consent, but we could think about it in a way broader term than that. Consent, encapsulating, honouring the image of God in another person. And consent specifically, encouraging women to both find and exercise their voices. We want you to do that as well, men, our brothers, our dear brothers. Of course we do. But in this conversation, you know, I think it's significant what the Christian faith does and says to women. Thanks. Sorry, I'm getting my preach on now. That's <laughs> great. I'm ready to sign up. Um, Amy, thank you. And this is, um, this is a hard conversation. Thank you for jumping in. We haven't um, chatted too much about what we're going to talk about. And um, I want to um, encourage those of us in the room, um, thank you for doing the work with us by listening. And I know for some of us in the room, this will be immensely painful in terms of past experiences and even live realities right now. I know for others, maybe watching online, you'll be like, what is this? You know, just, I want to encourage us as a church community, I'm speaking to those of us in the room and part of this family here. We place a high value on being the kind of community mm. where we can have honest, loving, open, safe conversations and help lead each other and love each other and serve each other well. And so um, if you're a member of this community, um, we want you to know that we take this stuff seriously Mm. because it's really important to the heart of God that we would be a a place where we're okay, we can talk about stuff and it's okay to not be okay and get help when needed. And to reiterate, if there's anything that I've touched on or Amy's touched on tonight that feels um, like you'd like to follow up further, if you would like to talk to somebody, if you've got things you need to get off your chest or if you've got... Anything that you're worried about, if you want to make any kind of disclosure about anything we've talked about tonight in your personal life, in your work life, in your family life, in your home life, in your church life, then there are ways you can do that online. You can see our website, but also there are a team at the back present here today. And as we um, come to pray in a moment and um, uh, we move on, I I want to just also encourage us. This is, while Amy is here as a guest tonight, Amy is is here as a friend. And while this is a sort of one-off topic, this is not a one-off conversation. So I want us as a church to create spaces where in our connect groups, um, in, in our conversations as friends, it's okay to talk about this stuff, okay? And um, I say that as a pastor and a father and a friend, I really want us to grow the kind of community here where we get to have the privilege of walking with each other through some of the things that are more difficult. And that's not to say we're going to get it right, that we're not going to, um, you know, w- w- there's lots of grace. and. My final encouragement, I guess, and I wanted to ask Amy this, is, um, you know, in this room, there'll be a, a mixture of, um, and, and who knows who's watching online, you know, we, we put this online and, and we're not responsible in the same way for those who are watching online as we are in the room here. But um, in any community, there'll be a mixture of those who've experienced great trauma. And we touched on some of those things tonight. There'll be others who've experienced um, 
nothing who are wanting to know how they can be good friends and, and advocates for others. And there'll be others who've experienced um, mistakes, who've made errors, who've, who've, who carry shame and guilt. What does it mean for us as a church community to, to build well for the future? And so I, I kind of ask that to you as a, as a final encouragement. When you look at this room and um, us as a community, what encouragement would you give us to be a place where the cross is made real, the image of God is respected and honoured and encouraged in each other. Mm. And how can we live well now? Mm. Final encouragement. Thanks, Al. Um, can I say two things? The first would be to say um, this safeguarding conversation is so important and it's not something we outsource to anyone else, like we're all on the team, on the safeguarding team. And I guess I would encourage us to have a posture where if someone discloses something of great pain to them, where we don't immediately rush to the defense of the more powerful person, but that we listen to victims and have a a posture of finding it plausible what they're saying and and showing empathy and signposting to where help can be found and that's something that one person can't do alone that's 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 a community ethic isn't it and it's a commitment really to both believing in the image of God but also believing in Genesis 3 that there was a fall and people do do great harm in this world People sometimes pull the wool over our eyes and even people we love and admire, you know, are are not beyond this kind of behaviour. And so to be a church where it is safe for, for, for a victim or for a person to really share their deepest and most profound pain and to be received and believed and cared for and not shut down I think that, that, that would be really amazing. And then um, I guess the second and most important thing is we've got Jesus. We don't have to do this alone. So if you're a person who is, you know, at this moment, you, you, you're sort of not wanting the, the, the flood of feelings to come, but you've experienced devastation, you've experienced abuse, you've experienced something horrific, We follow a traumatised saviour whose face, the love of God revealed to us in his face is a face that has walked through trauma. So you don't have to be alone. The love of God is with you and with me. And then um, the great sort of theologians and thinkers of the church talk about um, three things that would encapsulate what it might look like to follow Jesus. And those are goodness, beauty and truth. So might we be people who are so like Jesus that the world sees and feels and experiences not just in what we say, but in how we live in our non-verbal as well as our verbal communication, the goodness and the beauty and the truth of Jesus. Ultimately, it's all about him. Where you feel hope is lost, that good shepherd Al read, if you remember the 23rd Psalm, that the Lord is our shepherd and Jesus is that good shepherd and we've got him. So lean on him, turn to him, be carried by him, be shaped by him. Exercise if you haven't experienced trauma and you're called to minister to others, do it in a way that is like him, the great shepherd, the traumatised saviour. Amy, thank you so much. Why don't we thank Amy um, for sharing. What we're going to do now, um, because I'm aware for many of us in this room, this will have have raised feelings and um, I I want us to to sort of be practical about this. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have like a good old fashioned stretch break. Is that all right? And we're just going to like, hey, just check in with the person next to you. See how you're doing. If you need to take a breather, and then we're gonna um, we're gonna worship, and then we're gonna close the service. And um, you know, th- this is this is what ministry looks like: is actually 
not being afraid to have these conversations. Um, the, the ministry of Jesus looks like lots of tough conversations with people the whole time. And that's okay. And so um, why don't we pray? And um, just thank you for listening. You're doing great. Um, I'm really grateful for your um, attention, your care, as we've, we've touched on the subject tonight. And um, let me pray. Lord Jesus, every one of us here is loved deeply by you. And we don't get our lives right the whole time. And we thank you that you have loved us from the beginning and you'll love us into eternity. And we come to you today desperately in need of your kindness and your grace. And I just pray for those for whom what we talked about tonight is deeply painful, that you would comfort. Thank you that you are the God of all comfort. We pray for those of us who need healing, that you would heal. Thank you that you're the good healer, the great physician. And above all, Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you're the wounded healer. You're the savior of the world, that you died and you rose and you ascended and that we are in your hands. The whole universe belongs to you and that we're not alone and we're not without hope. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to live beauty, goodness and truth kindness and grace. And we just pray your blessing on us tonight. That we would know your goodness that would follow us all the days of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.